0: In five hundred thirty nine BC, the ancient Babylonian Empire was absorbed into the even larger Media Persian Empire. A ruler named Darius or Darius had conquered Babylonian. The question we addressed last time was this was Darius the same as a man named Cyrus that ruled the ancient Media Persian Empire? Was Darius one and the same man? Um Some people argue he was. The argument is that Darius was not a personal name. Instead, Darius was an honorific title, such as Pharaoh or Caesar, and that Cyrus had taken that honorific title for himself once he started to rule Media Persia. That's one opinion. Then some argue that, no, Darius and Cyrus were separate people. These were two different men. There's no question, this is documented, Cyrus was head of the Media persian Empire. So the argument is that Darius was a sub-ruler to Cyrus and that he ruled over captured Babylonia under the auspices of Cyrus. I wouldn't commit to either interpretation last time, but I am this morning. I believe that Darius and Cyrus were different people that these were two different men, that Cyrus ruled the entire media Persian Empire and that Darius ruled captured Babylonia which was a sizable, sizable area. I plan to demonstrate that near the end of this message. From the first half of Daniel 6 we learned that Darius had selected 120 men to serve as satraps. Satraps, that's an unusual name. Satraps were rulers on a smaller scale. And those 120 men were assigned or instructed to govern different parts of the geographical region that the former Babylonian empire covered. Darius, though, didn't totally trust those 120 Satraps, so he selected three governors to oversee them. So there were three governors that would oversee those 120 men. Daniel was one of those three governors. Darius was also considering promoting Daniel to prime minister so that Daniel would then be over the governors who were then over the satraps. It is apparent. Daniel was Darius's favorite. He had uh, endeared himself to Darius. Darius found him valuable in his service, an asset to him. And that caused those governors and satraps to become envious of Daniel. Those men wanted Daniel to be eliminated. So some of them got together and decided to entrap Daniel. It was common knowledge that Daniel prayed three times a day. Daniel prayed morning, noon, and night, evening. So these envious men Kondarius, Darius, deceived him into signing an executive order. An edict that said that no one could pray to a perceived God for a one-month period. That law couldn't be changed. It was the law of the Medes and Persians. It could not be changed or altered. And the punishment for violating that no-praying law was death in the den of lions. Now, Daniel had been informed about this edict, this executive order. He'd been informed that this law had been signed. And so he then proceeded to ignore it. He continued to pray three times each day as he had before. So some of these men that had actually initiated that law then had a stakeout and Daniel was caught praying. He was arrested. And please notice, Daniel didn't protest. He didn't protest. Daniel didn't offend himself because there was no defense. The law said, the law that couldn't be changed said... Um, the law that Darius had been deceived into signing said no one was to pray for one month period of time. No one. Daniel had defied that anti-praying decree and he continued, he intended to continue to violate that decree. So there was nothing more to be said. So he didn't defend himself. Notice verse 16. We'll start there. Daniel 6 verse 16. So the king gave the command and they brought Daniel and cast him into the den of lions. But the king spoke, saying to Daniel, your God, whom you serve continually. Now notice, Daniel wasn't someone who served God out of convenience. Daniel served God out of commitment. He was a consistent, continuing servant of the Most High God. Then it reads that Darius said to Daniel, just before he was tossed into this lion's den, He, meaning Daniel's God, will deliver you. Now, Darius sounds confident that Daniel is going to be rescued. He wasn't as confident as he sounded as we are going to see. Verse 17. Then a stone was brought and laid on the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his own signet ring, and with the signets of his lords, that the purpose concerning Daniel might not be changed. A signet, that's an unfamiliar word to most of us, a signet was a personalized identification mark, a similar to Nike's swoosh, similar to a rancher's cattle brand. And each person had a signet. And in ancient times, someone's signet was often attached to his ring, a ring attached to his finger on a chain around his neck. The famous Old Testament commentator C.F. Keel described what archaeologists have discovered about ancient lion's dens, and in doing that, he gives us an idea of their design during Darius's reign. He said this, In ancient times, the den consisted of a large square cavern underneath the earth. It had a partition wall in the middle of it. There was a large door which the keeper of the den could open and close from above the ground. Meaning he didn't have to go into the den to open and close the door. There were two separate chambers because of that wall and that door. Two separate chambers to that underground den. The keeper would throw food into one chamber that would entice the lions to go into that chamber where the food was. The keeper would then close the door to that chamber after them, so he and the others could enter the other chamber for the purpose of cleaning it. Part of the cavern was open from above. There was a small opening from above ground, uh, and it was surrounded by a short wall, um, a yard and a half high, three and a half feet high, where people could lean over the wall and look down into the lion's den. So this lion's den. Daniel found himself in, was something on that order. Now the final step was to cover that opening with a heavy stone and then seal it around its edges using clay tablets. Um, Darius and his nobles would then uh, press their signet rings that insignia that each of them had onto that wet clay and then it would harden now that signified unless someone had more authority than those rulers more than darius and his nobles then no one was legally permitted to move that stone from the opening to the lion's den the only one who had more authority than them was cyrus the head of the entire media Persian Empire. So that meant that no one throughout the media Persian Empire had legal permission to interfere with Daniel's execution. Now remember this was a den of lions, actual lions. Lions are powerful animals. In 1965 there was a movie called Clarence the Cross-Eyed Lion. This is Clarence and these are corrective glasses that Clarence is wearing. Clarence, the cross-eyed lion, was not in that den. And then in the famous children's book and subsequent movies, Wizard of Oz, we've all seen Wizard of Oz, there's the cowardly lion. There was no cowardly lion in that den. So these weren't some small, playful pussycats. These are actual adult lions. Question, was Daniel frightened? Was Daniel scared being dropped into that lion's den? The biblical text doesn't tell us. There was strong reason to believe that Daniel wasn't afraid to die. He had been in similar situations before and God had rescued him each time. It has been said that a man operating in the will of God is considered immortal until his divine assignment on earth is finished. Meaning as long as we are doing what God has assigned us to do, then we are invincible until God determines that our assignment is finished our problem is we don't know when God has made that determination and when that is finished until it happens so Daniel wasn't afraid to die we're confident of that but we can assume he was probably nervous about how he was scheduled to die most people wouldn't choose to die being ripped into a thousand pieces from a den full of starving lions That's, that wasn't how Daniel wanted to exit this earth I might add contingent on the size of their prey, lions sometimes (coughs) don't wait until the animal actually dies before eating them. go to YouTube, you can see this. (coughs) I've watched it, it's kind of gross. Lions often eat larger animals alive. Lions are not just nice, oversized kitty cats. We all face figurative lions, serious illness, Toxic and difficult people, <clears throat> unexpected expenses, prolonged unemployment, business closure due to government overreaction to COVID, unwanted divorce, slanderous accusations, familial dysfunction, and on and on and on. Scripture teaches we can expect opposition from figurative lions. 1 Peter 5, verse 8 be sober. The original Greek word translated as sober means to abstain from wine. And it means being discreet. Being discreet is something that an intoxicated person cannot be. Be discreet. Be vigilant. Be vigilant means be attentive. Be aware. Be guarded. Be alert. Why? Because your adversary, adversary means opponent, nemesis, enemy. Your adversary, the devil, walks about, how does he walk about? Like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour Satan wants to eat us alive just as a lion would and he can if we aren't conscious of his presence the prophetical expert now in his 90s I believe Hal Lindsey authored a book after his famous bestseller in the 70s late great planet earth he authored a book entitled Satan is alive and well on planet earth and he is and we must not forget that Verse 18. Now the king went to his palace and spent the night fasting. And no musicians were brought before him. Also his sleep went from him. Darius or Darius fasted because he had no appetite. He wasn't hungry. This was an involuntary fast because his mind was fixated on Daniel in the lion's den. He was so hoping Daniel's God would rescue him and he was so anxious to learn if he had. Musicians and dancers could have been brought in and would have acted as diversions and shifted his attention away from Daniel, but he refused them. No food, no entertainment, and no sleeping. So Darius tossed and turned in the bed and paced around the palace room, an absolute nervous wreck, because he wasn't all that confident that Daniel's God would rescue him. He, he believed he could, but he wasn't sure he would. But Daniel's situation was much different. Daniel's in the den. It's probable, though, that Daniel actually slept that night. This is how Dr. David Jeremiah imagined his night was. I might add, Dr. David Jeremiah is one of my favorites. Uh, Favorite author, favorite preachers. I actually watch him as I prepare or review my message on Sunday mornings. This is how Dr. David Jeremiah imagined his night was. He said, our imagination... Only our imagination can take us into that den. When the guard slammed the door shut on the opening and affixed the seal, Daniel slid to the floor of the den. With an ear-shattering roar, I might add male lions roar at above 114 decibels. That's loud. The huge cats came bouncing and bounding from their corners and skidded to a stop as if a powerful hand had restrained them abruptly. Their roars began to fade as they formed a solid wall of fur around this alien intruder, some sniffling at his feet and others gradually nuzzling his side. Others turned with an indifferent snort and ambled away. Daniel slumped down, completely exhausted after his nerve-wracking experience, and he prayed a prayer of thanksgiving to Yahweh. Jehovah God for his deliverance he then leaned back against the wall to make himself comfortable for the night but the dungeon was damp and chilly two lion cubs moved in his direction not crouching for an attack but with obvious friendliness the cubs nestled close to him providing him with warmth cushioning his body in their soft fur then an old lioness crept over and lay in front of him he stroked their backs and they licked his hand. Soon Daniel's head was pillowed by one of the cubs and the four of them, Daniel and these three lions, slept soundly in perfect peace and tranquility. It's more than probable that something like that happened, that Daniel slept throughout the night. But miserable Darius tossed and turned on his comfortable bed and he was up and down all night, racked with guilt and fear. Verse 9. Then the king arose very early in the morning and went in haste to the den of lions. That means the next morning as soon as there was the slightest amount of sunlight. Darius left the palace and ran to the lion's den. He was so anxious to see what had happened to Daniel, and he was hopeful, but he wasn't sure. Verse 20. And when he came to the den, and he he had to have had some men move the stone break the seals and move the stones so he could see down into the den he cried out with a lamenting voice he cried out so this is a loud voice and a lamenting voice a lamenting voice was one that was full of anguish and anxiousness he cried out with a lamenting voice to Daniel he said Daniel servant of the living God has your God whom you serve continually been able to deliver you from the lions Darius was anxious He was nervous. He was almost afraid he would find Daniel in that den dead. But he had some faith in Daniel's God because he had heard about how God had rescued him before. And so he shouted down into the lion's den to learn his fate and Daniel responded. Verse 21, Then Daniel said to the king, O king, live forever. That was the traditional greeting uh, to someone of his stature. Daniel is still acting according to expected protocol. Verse 22, Daniel continued. Daniel said, my God, I love that. My God has sent his angel and shut the lion's mouths. That guardian angel also paralyzed their paws. As just those paws could have ripped him to shreds. My God sent his angel and shut the lion's mouths so that they have not hurt me because I was found innocent before him and also O king I have done no wrong before you Daniel said to Darius from still down in that den he shouted up and he said I'm okay God sent an angel I'm okay I haven't sinned against God and I haven't sinned against you I'm innocent of wrongdoing so God has spared me some critics argue that Daniel survived because this is the theory because once he was dropped into the den in the darkness he found a corner of the den and he huddled up there so the lions couldn't see him that's how he survived ignoring the fact that lions have a strong sense of smell that's pure nonsense Charles Spurgeon said it was a good thing the lions didn't eat Daniel it wouldn't have been an enjoyable meal Because Daniel was 50% grit and 50% backbone. Probably so. Verse 23. Now the king, Darius, was exceedingly glad for him. I would suggest probably not as glad as Daniel was. (laughs) The king was exceedingly glad for him and commanded that they should take Daniel up out of the den. So Daniel was taken up out of the den and no injury whatever was found on him because he believed in his God. Darius was so relieved to hear Daniel speaking. So relieved that Daniel survived the night in the lion's den. So he had Daniel pulled up from the den and then noticed, and after investigation, found that there wasn't a single scratch on him. Not one. Now, please notice Daniel didn't retaliate against those men. That had plotted against him to have him executed, those men that had approached Darius and deceived him into signing this no praying order or edict he he wasn 't vindicative he he didn 't re- want to retaliate uh, against these men, but Darius did Darius had been deceived when he signed that edict or that executive order that law he wasn 't thinking about daniel 's practice of praying he just it never entered his mind he just forgotten any any he, he was deceived he was conned into doing that and he was angered that he'd been conned into doing that he had a right to be angered but he totally overreacted notice verse 24 and the king Darius gave the command and they brought those men who had accused Daniel now we don't know for certain the exact number of men that had approached Darius about signing that no praying order But it could have been a substantial number of men. It could have been a dozen of them or more. We don't know. And they cast them, meaning cast those men that had accused Daniel and conned Darius into signing that decree, cast them into the den of lions. Them, Daniel's accusers, their children and their wives. Do you understand what has just happened here? entire families were executed. Because of some envious and evil men who wanted to get rid of Daniel. That was something the Jewish Mosaic Law prohibited. Deuteronomy 24 verse 16. 2 Kings 14 verse 6 teach that children should not be punished for their father's sins. Each one should be punished for his own sin. But the Median Persians weren't so merciful rulers had entire families executed if a man committed a serious crime against the government and there were two reasons for doing that one that supposedly acted as a deterrent to others and discouraged them from committing such crimes and it probably did and two it was also it also eliminated the threat of members of the guilty party's household from retaliation still it's inhumane It shouldn't have happened unless those persons from those households were complicit in the crime and there's no evidence they were. But Darius didn't care. He had these men and their families dropped into that den of lions. Verse 24 continues. And they cast them meaning cast all of these families into the den of lions. And the lions overpowered them and broke all their bones in pieces before, notice, before they ever came to the bottom of the den. That is a significant rebuttal to the lame argument that Daniel survived the lion's den because there were just a couple of lions down there that had just finished eating a big meal and weren't hungry, and weren't interested in eating an old Jewish prophet. No, there were enough lions in that den to eat all those families tossed into the den. And those lions had been purposely deprived of food. That was a common practice. So they wouldn't hesitate to eat someone. Those lions were almost starving, as evidenced in that that all these people were assaulted before their bodies even hit the floor of the den. An African male adult lion can weigh 550 pounds and possess unusual strength. Lions use their paws as striking weapons. Lions are so strong that some have killed black bears and brown bears with just one bow, caving in their skulls or breaking their spines. Lions can kill hyenas, water buffalo, zebra, wildebeest, oxen, and even giant elon and other animals weighing up to 4,000 pounds. Biologists and zoologists have compared the strength of a lion's strike to a steam hammer and lightning bolt. Lions don't have the strongest animal bite. The strongest bites are those from great white sharks and saltwater crocodiles. Don't play with them. Nothing compares to them and their bites. But a lion's bite is still significant, substantial. Lions have a bite force of 650 pounds per square inch, although some of them measured more than 1,100 pounds per square inch. Humans have a bite force of just 150 to 200 pounds per square inch. So a lion's bite is much stronger than a human's. Lions can easily crunch, crack, bite through the largest human bones. So no human, no one, would have been able to survive those starving lions unless God shut their mouths and told them to keep their paws to themselves. (laughs) And in Daniel's case, God did that. Verse 25, Then King Darius wrote to all peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, Peace be multiplied to you. Verse 26. This is what Darius wrote. I make a decree that in every dominion of my kingdom. People, this is a kingdom-wide decree. No one is is exempt from this decree. This is for all people. Men must tremble and fear before the God of Daniel. For he, Daniel's God, is the living God and steadfast forever. His kingdom is the one which shall not be destroyed, and his dominion shall endure to the end. Verse 27, He, Daniel's God, delivers and rescues, and he works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth, who has delivered Daniel from the power of the lions. People, imagine. Imagine that executive decree. Imagine that announcement coming from the White House. And in particular, the current White House. This announcement from Darius would have been the equivalent to that. It's interesting that at the beginning of this chapter, there was a new regime. The media Persians had conquered Babylonia, so there's a new regime. And then at the end of this chapter, there is a new religion. Darius demanded that the people throughout this kingdom worship Daniel's God. Notice that God delivered Daniel. Because God chose to deliver Daniel. It does read that Daniel believed God. He believed God could do that. He wasn't certain of that though. There were no guarantees that God would do that. God could have chosen not to deliver Daniel. He could have chosen not to rescue him. And sometimes God chooses not to rescue people that, like Daniel, have proven to be faithful to him. The famous Old Testament prophet Isaiah, a faithful, faithful man, was stuffed into a hollowed out log and then cut in half. God chose not to rescue Isaiah. The most famous New Testament martyr was Paul. And Paul was beheaded. God chose not to rescue him. Simon Peter was crucified upside down. God chose not to rescue him. And that continues to happen. Faithful Christians, and most of us aren't aware of this, faithful Christians are being martyred in persecuted countries at a rate not seen since the persecution from the first centuries of the church. And it's frustrating not being able to understand that. It's puzzling to me that God permits some of these, I call them clown Christians, Some of these clown Christians that survive carefree to old age. He rescues them from dangerous situations that are more often than not self-induced. And then God permits someone that possesses unquestionable commitment to Jesus Christ. He permits that person to be arrested, uh, imprisoned, and sometimes executed. And it happens in childhood or just beginning adulthood and that seems so nonsensical to us why does God do that he permits these to live to old age who don't give a rip about his cause and those that do he permits to be persecuted I just read about one such person that has received international attention of late some of us remember that in 2018 the Islamic terrorist group Boko Haram um, kidnapped 110 schoolgirls from the government's Girls' Science and Technical College in Nigeria. Now, Boko Haram has done this on multiple occasions. This is one of the more recent ones. I might add more than 1,500 Christians have been murdered and martyred in Nigeria in just the past five months. The name Boko Haram means Western education is forbidden. People remember, according to fundamentalist Islam, according to Islamists, this nation, we are the great Satan. 110 girls kidnapped. Five of those girls died in that abduction. The remaining 105 kidnapped girls were permitted to return home a month after that abduction, except for one. One wasn't. She was Leah Sheribu. Leah Sheribu was just 14 at the time of that abduction. And she was the only Christian in that group. And she wasn't freed because she refused to renounce her Christian faith and convert to Islam. She is now considered a lifelong slave to that terrorist organization. And since being kidnapped, she was forced into marriage to a Boko Haram commander. In the mind of those terrorists, that made her a Muslim because she was now married to a Muslim man. But she isn't a Muslim. She has continued to reject Islam and refuses to renounce Christianity. She has just given birth to a second child in captivity at age 18 as a result of rape to her forced marriage husband. Her case has just been presented to the United Nations asking them to intervene because to date, God has not chosen to rescue her. None of us have all the answers on the reasons God does what he does. But what God does do and what God doesn't do is contingent on what glorifies him the most. In Daniel's case, his rescue glorified him the most. His spiritual commitment, even in that situation, testified to Darius, testified to the Mesian, Media Persian politicians, and testified to all the inhabitants of former Babylonia that his God, Daniel's God, is the sovereign ruler over all. And that act resulted in this decree from Darius to that effect. Verse 28. So this Daniel prospered in the reign of Darius and, notice, and, and is a conjunction and in the reign of Cyrus the Persian that sentence on the surface sounds as though Darius the Mede and Cyrus the Persian and Cyrus is the ultimate ruler of the Media Persian Empire Darius the Mede and Cyrus the Persian were two different people so I, I feel that probably Darius Cyrus headed up the entire Median Persian Empire and uh, Darius was a sub ruler to him and governed the former Babylonian region the captured Babylonia under his auspices that's how I see it. The book of Daniel consists of two sections chapters 1 through 6 are historical and biographical. The first half are historical and biographical, and the pri- focus is primarily on Daniel, although Daniel is still a principal character in the second half daniel's chapters seven through twelve are more prophetical prophetical. The second part focuses on some prophetical revelations Daniel received from God, four of them to be exact to be honest, the second half of this book is extremely complicated and controversial, so I'm going to take some time off, not long, take some time off though from this series in Daniel and decide how I want to approach this section because it is is complicated and it is extremely relevant though to us and to where we are now. So just be patient. In wrapping up the end of this first half of this book, the big idea is that Daniel finished strong. After six chapters of Daniel... We have the distinct impression that Daniel finished strong. Daniel was almost 90 at this juncture. And he is nearing the end of his existence on this earth. And notice Daniel has been consistent from beginning to end. He was virtuous as a teenager. And he was still virtuous as an old man. He finished strong. Some time ago I read an excellent book from Steve Farrar. Entitled, Finishing Strong. That interested me, as in a chronological sense, I am so much nearer the end than the beginning, so I could relate to that publication. I found it to be an excellent read. Since 1982, Dr. Robert Clinton has devoted his entire ministerial career to the study of leadership. He has developed case studies on over 900 leaders. Some of these leaders are biblical characters, Others are famous personalities from church history and some are more contemporary personalities. Clinton has reduced the 900 leaders to a group of 100 whom he characterizes as prominent leaders. As he studied those 100 leaders, Clinton was curious about something. He wanted to find out how many of those key leaders finished strong. How many of them hit the tape at full stride when they reached the end of their time on this earth. As he dug further into his research, he realized that of those 100 biblical characters, those 100 leaders, Scripture gave only enough information on only 49 to determine how each one finished. Clinton examined those 49 biblical characters and then ranked them according to how each finished. From this investigation, he determined that there are four kinds of finishes. So this is applicable to all of us. He determined there are four kinds of finishes that are relevant to all of us and not just those in leadership positions. Notice the first classification of finishers. Some finished premature. Some finished premature. Finished premature means that those persons finished earlier than expected. These persons finished earlier than anticipated. Some of them finished earlier than anticipated through being assassinated, or through being fatalities in battle, or through being prophetically denounced, or through being overthrown. Some examples of those premature finishers included Abimelech, Samson, Absalom, Ahab, Josiah, John the Baptist, and James. James was the principal pastor of the first church of Jerusalem, both John and James, were beheaded. Some of those that had premature finishers were good, good men. But most of them weren't. That trend continues though. Some people now still finish premature. Some premature finishes are no fault of the one that finishes earlier than expected. Some, don't miss this, some premature finishes are, of, are no fault of the one that finishes earlier than he or she wanted to finish. The first roommate I had in college was from Alaska. He had returned home during that first summer. He and his, some friends, and his pastor were fishing on a large Alaskan lake. There was an unexpected and sudden storm. There were no survivors, and no bodies were ever recovered. He was just 19. And although he wasn't the cause, he finished, he still finished premature. Before graduating from college, five other friends of mine died in small plane crashes. Three of them died in a crash in the mountains of western Arkansas, and their bodies weren't found until six months after the accident. All of them were committed Christians devoted to Christ, And all of them finished premature, although no fault of their own. Most premature finishes, though, most of them are self-induced. Most people that finish premature are responsible for that premature finish. Men that have disqualified themselves through committing sexual sin, or through misusing funds, or through some addiction, or through becoming bullies and abusing others, and that is becoming more and more common. Some men of megachurches in America of late have resigned because of bullying tactics and abusing people and creating this toxic environment. Each of them had a sad ending. Each of these men that are responsible for their own premature exit had a sad ending because it ultimately cost them more than any one of them could have imagined. I have seen men that had it all had it all lose everything I have seen men lose their reputation permanently lose their position never to regain it lose employment lose their marriage lose their children lose their houses lose their friends and in some cases lose their freedom because some of these men have been incarcerated someone said sin will take you farther than you want to go Sin will keep you longer than you want to stay, and sin will cost you more than you want to pay. I've seen it happen again and again. The passengers aboard the Titanic that booked first class accommodations paid thousands of dollars to have the best. One of them was a major, Arthur Pynchon. I might be mispronouncing his name, my. Apologize if I am. Arthur Pynchon was a successful Canadian businessman. In his stateroom, first class stateroom, sat an ornate tin box. That box contained $200,000 in bonds and more than $100,000 in preferred stock. Remember, those are numbers in 1912. $100,000 in 1912 would today, in 2021, equal $2.75 million. And altogether, he had three times that amount in that box. This major heard the announcement that the Titanic was sinking. So he quickly changed out of his tuxedo into two pairs of long underwear and heavier clothes. Then staring at that tin box containing all that money, he impulsively grabbed three oranges, stuffed them into his pockets, slammed the door of his stateroom behind him and left that tin box in that room. He was fortunate. He survived the Titanic disaster. But that shipwreck still cost him more than he ever could imagine. And so does a self-induced premature finish. Someone that is responsible for his earlier exit. Second, some have finished not so good. Not so good. Finished not so good means these individuals were going downhill at the end. In some cases it meant a significant distancing in their relational closeness to God. And in some cases it was basic incompetence on their part or an absence of spiritual commitment or both. These individuals, don't mistake this, these individuals did some definite good things earlier on but not so much at the end. Some examples of not so good finishers included Gideon, one of Israel's judges, Eli, the high priest, Saul, Israel's first king, and Solomon, Israel's third king. Those men were barely able to cross, crawl across the finish line. Either that or someone else carried them across the line. Most adults in this room have heard the name Billy Graham. Most people, though, don't recognize the names of his contemporaries, Charles Templeton and Braun Clifford. In 1945, Graham, Templeton, and Clifford All three men were packing out auditoriums across this nation. These men preached to thousands. And all three men came to prominence in their mid-twenties. Apologist Lee Strobel cites a conversation he had with Charles Templeton just before he died. And part of that conversation is recorded in the introduction to his book entitled The Case for Faith meaning the case for the Christian faith. Um, An excellent book, I might add. I suggest you purchase that book. Uh, And he included part of that conversation in the introduction. Uh, But most Christians weren't aware of Charles Templeton until the publication of that book. I was. My father told me about Chuck Templeton when I was a teenager. In fact, I even mentioned him in sermons in the 70s and 80s uh, and 90s uh, before his death but most hadn't heard of him. One seminary president heard Charles Chuck Templeton preach, and he described him as a brilliant, dynamic preacher. He said he was the most gifted and talented preacher in the nation. Templeton and Graham became very close friends. In fact, Billy Graham maintained contact with him until Templeton's death. The two of them started preaching together both here and in Europe. Graham, Templeton, and another preacher named Tory Johnson established an organization called Youth for Christ. Youth for Christ was huge. Um, as teenagers, Hopi and I, our first date was to a Youth for Christ rally on a Saturday night. We attended probably dozens of youth. That's where we, that's where we went for a date. It was cheap. Um, so... We, <laughs> It kind of was, anyway. And I, I was poor. So we attended these large Youth for Christ rallies on Saturday night in Kansas City. More than a thousand teenagers would attend those rallies. And they were phenomenal. And Billy Graham and Templeton and Tory Johnson established that organization. Most people were convinced it was Templeton, not Graham, that would become the next greatest evangelist. One magazine wrote an article calling Templeton the Babe Ruth of Evangelism. He preached a series of lectures during an entire week at Yale University. In one 24-month period, he preached extensive meetings in 44 different states. He hosted a religious television program. In 1946, I found this odd, the National Association of Evangelicals gave out a bizarre award. This bizarre award was called Best Used of God. As if humans can make that determination... And we can't. Kind of a dumb award, but that's what happened. Charles Templeton received that award. Then Charles Templeton attended Princeton Seminary. He attended seminary where his faith was tested. He didn't pass that test. It was in the 1950s that he announced that he had become an agnostic. Agnostic meaning he was no longer certain about God's existence. And then over a 10-day period of time, he immersed himself in reading from atheists. During that 10-day period, he read from Voltaire, Bertrand Russell, Robert Ingersoll, David Hume, and Alex Huxley. And then he announced that he had moved from agnosticism to atheism. He became a journalist and radio broadcaster in Canada. And in 1999... He authored his memoir entitled My Farewell to God, subtitled My Reasons for Rejecting the Christian Faith. How sad. Bron Clifford is a completely unfamiliar name to most people. He was another gifted young fireball evangelist. Some said it was Clifford that was the most powerful preacher the church had seen in centuries. People lined up for hours to hear him preach. He went to Baylor University to preach, and some students cut the ropes off the bells in the tower because they wanted nothing to interfere with his preaching. For two and one half hours, Baylor's students sat on the edges of their seats as he gave her dissertation on Christ and the Philosopher's Stone. Most people don't know this, but at age 25, he set more crusade attendance records than any preacher at that age prior to him. And that includes Billy Graham. National leaders wanted his attention. He was tall, talented, handsome, sophisticated, and intelligent. I was never blessed with that burden. Never had that problem. Hollywood tried to cast him in the lead role for the famous movie, The Robe. From all external measurements, it seemed Braun, Clifford, had it all. By 1954, though, Clifford had lost his preaching career and his health because of his addiction to alcohol. He had become financially destitute. He left his wife, left his two Down syndrome children, and he left them penniless. There are sometimes some overlap in these categories of finishers because Clifford not just finished not so good, but he also finished premature because that once famous preacher died from cirrhosis of the liver at age 35. He died alone in a run-down hotel on the edge of Amarillo, Texas. He died a pitiful and dishonorable death. Some pastors from Amarillo got together and collected enough money from among themselves to purchase a cheap casket, and then shipped his body to the East Coast, where he was buried in a pauper cemetery. Those three men, Graham, Templeton, and Clifford, preached to thousands and thousands in 1945, but two of them finished not so good. And that's probably an understatement. Those men couldn't have finished much worse. Third category is those that finished so-so so so Finish so so means these people did not do what they could have done and didn't do what they should have done this classification of people did some of what God assigned them to do these people were partially obedient these people were obedient to a degree and did some of what God had for them still these people didn't complete all that God had assigned them. Even though these individuals were closer to God at the end than earlier on, still, their assignment was incomplete. These people finished so-so. Some examples of finishing so-so would be David, Israel's second king. Jehoshaphat, the fourth king over the southern kingdom of Judah. Hezekiah, the 13th king over the southern kingdom of Judah. Remember, Judah, the southern kingdom, consisting of two tribes headquartered at Jerusalem, is where Daniel and his three friends were taken captive from and brought into Babylon. This group, this grouping, represented some pretty good people. I mean, these people did some good things earlier on. But in a technical sense, although all of them finished some better than before, all of them finished so so the fourth classification is finished strong finished strong means these men and women were close to god and finished their divine assignments up to and including the end clinton identified some men that finished strong abraham job joseph Joshua, Caleb, Samuel, Elijah, Jeremiah, John, Paul, Peter, and one name in particular that stood out to me was Daniel, the man that we have have studied for months, Daniel. This people is where we should all want to be. Now, I need to add, this definition from Mr. Farrar, Where these people were close to God and finished their divine assignments up to and including the end. That might be more accurately defined as the definition for finished strongest. Not just strong, finished strongest. Because finishing strong can compensate, I believe compensate for sin and failure earlier on, as long as the ending is there. Remember, this is about finishing. This is not about beginning. This is not about mid-race. This is about finishing. How do we finish? I believe in a theoretical sense, someone could have a mediocre beginning. A slow, slow beginning. Someone could even have a near disastrous middle and still finish strong. Someone could experience a moral failure. Someone could experience another serious sin or some disqualification. And then... At some subsequent point, repent from that. Repentance, as Charles Spurgeon said, where someone's repentance is as notorious as his sin. Someone repent from that. And then over time, a process of time, be restored. And then resolve to put the pedal to the metal to the absolute end and finish strong. Yes, that's theoretically possible. Why? Because people, God's grace is greater than any sin but it doesn't happen that often. Remember in this Christian journey we all are in. It's not how we start that matters. It's how we finish. As someone that is older now, myself, I consistently pray this prayer, Dear God, please, please help me to finish strong. Understand all of us are going to finish at some point. All of us. The question is, how are we going to finish? Is our finish going to be premature? Not so good? So-so? Or are we going to finish strong? I challenge you, dare to be a Daniel. And do as Daniel did. Finish strong. Let's bow our heads. Father, thank you for this man, Daniel incredible example he has set for us—what a model for us to mimic! God help us to do as he did. No matter where we've been in this Christian journey, we may have failed miserably. We have ma- may have fallen on our faces. We have may-, may have sinned, and we're so ashamed of that. But God help us to understand: we can still, we can still finish strong if we would determine to do that. And I pray that every one of us would. We should all want to finish strong. And I pray that what we've shared this morning will just add to that conviction and encourage us to continue to do that. So we thank you again for what we're learning. And I pray that you'll bless it to our hearts and our minds and our lives as we go. And I thank you in the name of Jesus, your son. Amen.